Uh, my name is Brent. For those of you that are visiting, one of the pastors here at Faith and just welcoming you to uh, worship with us this morning. Um, it, it, it is my firm belief that we as Christians um, need to uh, live the truth of Jesus as a way of life. And so as we make the truth of who Jesus is and we know who Jesus is, it informs our life and our every step. And so um, what we endeavor to do here at Faith is to do that in three different ways, kind of all in, in unity together. Is first that we want to be a congregation, a body of believers that learns together. We place a high value, a high emphasis on knowing our Bibles because that's the revelation of the truth of who God is in Jesus Christ. And so the more time that we take to study our Bibles, to memorize our Bibles, to grapple with the scriptures in, in a community with one another and from the, behind the pulpit, all of those things we think make us uh, a better equipped, more informed and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But we also think that that's dangerous to do in isolation. I say dangerous. If you know your Bible, that helps. But oftentimes, if we don't do it as part of a community of believers, we become big-headed. We become full of our own opinions. Nobody else does it as good as we do. We've got the only avenue of truth and all that kind of stuff. So doing this in the context of fellowship and sharing this life with other people rounds a lot of that out. And it humbles us to, to understand that we don't practice well all the things that we claim to know. And that's why we need the encouragement and the faithfulness of others in our lives. Like Pastor Tom had alluded to before, even in our worship, doing it collectively together somehow sharpens us and puts us in right standing before the Lord. And then lastly, what we expect for that knowledge of who God is and doing it together, what we expect it to do, what God expects it to do is to send us out with that truth. That we go and share what we know. We share the life that we've received with other people. And so uh, over this last year, um, we put a high emphasis on combining these three factors together in an avenue called our discipleship growth track. And that was an invitation to the church at large to come together and to uh, learn through the midweek on a, on a matter of on the matters of truth. Um, what the gospel really is and how each of us, even if we've been saved and our sins have been forgiven, we've been washed in the blood of the lamb, that we need to know the gospel for ourselves for daily uh, reminder and application. But to know the truth of what, what the gospel is and then the ability to be able to share that truth effectively with other people. Uh, to do it compassionately, to do it in a way that engages the culture with all of the things that are heavy on the culture's mindset and the, the systems that are out there that are even against the, the will of the Lord. And how do we really tactfully and compassionately but courageously engage with that? How do we do that together? And so the discipleship growth track brought all three of those components together. We're not done. We're taking a summer break and getting back to it in the fall. But along the way, we were able to bring in one of our ministry friends, a, a guy that we've supported over the last couple of years who's doing incredible and courageous work on college campuses primarily, and in particular with uh, the University of Orono and others. But I'll let Travis Pelletier explain that when he comes. But uh, the last time that we had Travis come and speak to this audience, um, I hadn't received as much follow-up of, that was really amazing, that was incredible. Where's Travis? You ready to live up to this? Uh, I get to present Travis probably the first time ever in his life as a treat. 
You are a treat to us today, my brother. Um, but anyway, so we love Travis. He came and helped us with our discipleship growth track for four weeks this year of incredible effect. We can't be more proud to have you come and uh, have the pulpit with us this morning. So please welcome Travis Pelletier this morning. Wow. Well, it is exciting to be here with you guys. Um, I've come here frequently enough in the last few months where you're starting to feel like family. So for whether it's a different... Uh, teaching engagements, or what have you. The uh, message this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 7. You know, an interesting thing happened at my local church, Cross Point Church, a couple weeks ago. There was a young adult Sunday school class that I'm normally at when I can, but I'm usually, I'm often at other churches, so I can't always make it. Well, one of the weeks that I wasn't there, um, in attendance, a young man came in. He's uh, someone that I'm an acquaintance with, and he told the group, you know, I've really been struggling a lot with my faith. I don't, I don't know what I believe anymore. I, he'd been watching a bunch of online debates between atheists and Christians, and he just, he just didn't know if any of it was true. And I think his experience, what he was going through, is a lot more common than we realize. A lot more common. Probably the majority of the people in this room have at some period in their lives had moments where you were stepping back and thinking, wait a second, is this whole Christianity thing true in the first place? Should I really believe this? Should I be a Christian? And since this is so common, I think we should look to the scripture to see how we should respond and deal with those times of doubt in our own lives. Because we're, we're all going to experience them at some point. And thankfully... God has inspired uh, the author Luke to tell us a true story about John the Baptist, where John the Baptist went through a period of doubt. And I think we're going to look at how John responded to this, and I think we can learn a lot about how we should respond to doubt in our own lives and how we should respond to other people who are struggling with doubts as well. I'm going to, I always try to put the main point at the right up front so you know what I'm trying to communicate. The main point I want to get across from this passage here is that it is healthy and normal, not just normal, but also healthy for a Christian to have periods where they're struggling with doubt and questions. It's a, it can be a good thing, and it's definitely a normal thing, but how we respond to those doubts makes all the difference. So Luke chapter 7, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 35, Luke seven eighteen through 35. Um, for a little bit of context, Christ has just been doing a lot of miracles, establishing his identity. Christ didn't just come and say, believe me, because I said so. He came he, and said, hey, believe me, here's the evidence of fulfilled prophecy and, and the miracles and all these uh, passages in Scripture talking about me, giving evidence for who he is. But you know who hasn't been seeing those miracles recently? It's John the Baptist, because John the Baptist has been in prison. John the... So... Um, we're going to start reading, and that's the context, so let's go ahead and start reading in verse 18. And the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? 
And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before, before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. So John is in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. John from prison sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? What does this phrase mean here, the one who is to come? Well, if you had been raised in first century Judea as a young Jewish boy or girl, you have been brought up from a very young age hearing about the coming Messiah, the one who is going to come and throw off the Roman oppressors and establish a new kingdom that from which he would reign um, and the Jewish people would, would no longer be oppressed. They've lived their whole lives hearing prophecies of the coming Messiah. So, for example, Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there's the prophecy that a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And many Jewish commentators from that time period thought this was a prophecy of a coming Messiah. And then in, in Isaiah 7.14, it says that, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. More prophecies of the coming Messiah. And over and over and over again, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures are messianic to their core. They're all looking forward to someone who is to come to save the people of God. That's who the, that's the one who is to come. Now, what's fascinating here is John the Baptist, the one who's, who's asking, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? He is actually the one who had baptized Jesus. He's the one who, when Jesus was coming from afar off, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the one who, when he was still in his womb, and he was close to Mary, who had Jesus in her womb, John, as as a, an infant in the womb, leapt for joy because he recognized Jesus. John is the one that Jesus literally says, there is no man born of a woman greater than this person. So, so here's a question. If John so clearly recognizes Christ and is such a great, the greatest prophet we see other than Jesus in Scripture... How could he doubt? 
how could he go through and experience a question like this? Now, a couple things we can say right off the bat. What this should clarify for us is that experiencing doubt does not mean you're a worse Christian. That should be pretty clear, right? But scripture doesn't tell us exactly why John experienced these doubts, but scripture does tell us a lot about what John was going through and about what was going on in the period. So I think we can make some educated assumptions about what John was, what, what was causing this period of questioning. First off, John is going through an incredibly difficult time in his life. Just as Jesus' ministry is increasing and growing and having more successes, John's ministry is, is going down. Christ is increasing, John is decreasing. And, and John has spoken the truth to the people in authority in that time period. He told, he actually called out the king, uh, saying that he had, uh, done something sexually immoral. And for speaking the truth in that way, John was thrown into prison. And prisons of that time period were not pleasant places. Um, they were miserable places to be. John is going through an incredibly hard time. I think this is something that we can all identify with, right? Sometimes God seems absent, and sometimes it seems like he's absent in the most difficult times when we're going through hardship. This is something that scripture talks about, by the way. The Psalms are filled with with passages where the psalmist is speaking to God saying, God, I'm calling out to you, and you're not responding. I'm crying out to you, and you're not there. When you're reading some of these Psalms, it almost seems like, wow, is it it okay to talk to God like that? That's kind uh, kind of disrespectful, it feels like. No, the Psalms are open and honest. Sometimes you call out to God, and it feels like he's absent. And throughout Christian history, we've had many Christian saints talk about these dark nights of the soul where you're going through a hardship and you call out to God and it feels like he's absent and you're questioning what, what's wrong? Why, why, it, why am I going through this? Um, I'm reminded there's a, uh, Anglican poet, um, George Herbert, who wrote these amazing lines, um, when he was going through a very challenging time in his life, he said, God, why would you create Sorry, why would you give dust a tongue to cry to you and then not hear it crying? Those are powerful words. Someone really struggling with grief. And uh, more recently, C.S. Lewis, when he, his wife had died in a, a fairly tragic way, um, he wrote down his thoughts in a diary. He's just expressing his frustration and anger. It's called A Grief Observed, by the way. It's an amazing read, if anyone ever gets a chance to read it. But early on, when he's in, in the throes of this, the grief, he says, go to God when things are great, and it seems like he welcomes you with open arms. But then go to him when your need is desperate, and you get a door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the other side, and then silence. That's someone who's really struggling with his faith. And that's C.S. Lewis. He did, through the end of that diary, come through that. And that, like I said, well worth your time reading how his journey went through that grief. But the central point here is that it is normal for the Christian to experience periods where you're really suffering and where it seems like God's presence isn't the comfort that you wanted it to be in that moment. And you're not sure what to do. And it's very possible that John is going through this as well. A second thing that that would possibly make sense of John's doubt here is the religious climate of that time. Think about it. All of the people who are supposed to know the truth, the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, all the people that were the smartest people at that time had rejected Christ. They, They were not following him. And so now when John was 
mentally well and was not struggling and not suffering like he was, he had no problem pointing out their hypocrisy. He pointed out their hypocrisy very, very boldly. Um, however, John, John realized at that point that it was the condition of their hearts that caused them to reject Christ. But when he's going through the hard times, that's when you start to second guess yourself. Well, maybe I am wrong. Once again, by the way, this is something people struggle with a lot today. Uh, I talk to young people on the college campus all the time who they go into a secular atmosphere and suddenly all the smartest people they've ever met, at least from their perspective at that time, are telling them your faith is nonsense. Your faith is foolish. It's, 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 it's uh, maybe even hateful and bigoted. Who knows? And even if you don't hear any good reasons to doubt, just that fact that all these brilliant people disagree can kind of make you take a step back and say, whoa, have I missed something? This is something we can struggle with as well. Uh, a third reason that John might have been doubting here, and this is something that we see have people struggle with throughout the New Testament in various places, is that Jesus' actions weren't perfectly fitting with all the prophecies in Scripture, at least from that perspective at that time. Because, yes, there were many passages that pr predicted Christ coming and doing miracles. He fulfilled that, right? There were passages predicting uh, the Messiah coming and, and, and enduring hardship. Well, he was fulfilling that. But there were also many passages predicting the Messiah coming as a conquering king to throw off the oppressors. Well, he didn't seem to be doing that at that point. Now, now John, remember, John had limited information. He didn't have the whole scripture that we have today. And so he didn't know that Christ was going to first come as a suffering servant and then come a second time as the conquering king. He didn't see all that information there. So John had limited information. And so there are things that weren't perfectly matching up with Jesus in scripture based on his limited information. And that could easily cause a struggle as well. This is, once again, this is something that Christians frequently struggle with when it comes to doubts today. Um, like my job full-time is to answer tough questions, right? That's what I do full-time. However, there's a lot of, like, to, to be able to answer every difficult question would require something like omniscience. You'd have to know almost everything about the universe to have all the answers to all the hard questions, which means that I am never going to have enough information to answer every tough question. Just, just the fact of the matter, just because I'm limited. There are going to be times where someone's going to present me with something and I don't have the information at hand to just have the right answer. There are questions that we'll never get the perfect answers to in this life. So I think with these things in mind, there are good reasons to understand why John would be struggling. He was going through an incredibly difficult time. All the, the Jewish authority, religious authorities were telling him he was wrong. And John was working with incomplete information. And these are all things that we can deal with as well. And that frequently can cause us to struggle. And so I think God, John gives us a good example of how we should respond when we go through these times of doubt. So first off, what does John do? Well, he doesn't allow his doubt to separate him from Christ. He takes this question, he takes his doubts, he takes his questions straight to Jesus. He doesn't push these doubts away, doesn't ignore them, doesn't, doesn't, just, say, doesn't just push them away. By the way, that's, that's never a good strategy. If you have a question that's, that's causing you to really struggle with your faith, don't ignore it. 
don't just push it down saying, well, if I just ignore it, I won't, I won't worry about it in a couple of years because that's not the way it works. That doubt grows and it'll fester. It's worth taking the time to look seriously for good answers. And that's what John does. He goes to Christ and asks him his questions. And presumably, assuming he looked at the messengers that Christ sent back, he looked at the evidence that Christ gave. So John took his questions to Jesus, and he looked at the evidence of who Christ was from those messengers. So also, how how does Christ respond to Jesus' doubt? This is fascinating. This passage is, is a fascinating study of how God responds to doubts in different people differently. So let's, let's look at how Jesus responds to John's doubts. Then we'll compare it to some other passages in scripture. So first off, when the disciples come asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Verse 21, Je- the first thing Jesus does in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on them who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached unto him. So he heals right there. He heals many people right there in front of the disciples and tells, tells them to go and tell John what they had just witnessed. He gives them evidence for who he is and he gives them the perfect evidence because he knows that john has read the hebrew scriptures john knows the prophecies of the coming messiah and he knows that the coming messiah was prophesied to heal the blind heal the deaf so for example we can look at um isaiah chapter which one 29 18 actually let's do isaiah 35 56 there's a lot of options we can pick from but isaiah 35 56 is one good illustration of this Isaiah thirty-five fifty-six. Oh, 35, 5, and 6. Sorry, I can't read my handwriting. 35, 5, and 6. Yeah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Um, this is one of many, many passages about the coming Messiah. When the Messiah comes, the deaf will hear, the lame will, will walk, the dumb will speak, the poor will have the good news preached unto them. And so Jesus, knowing that John is looking for that, gives John exactly the evidence he needs and sends those disciples back to John to tell him about that. So Jesus gives John evidence, but beyond that, what does he say in verse 23? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who doesn't stumble at my words. Now, if anyone in scripture is offended by Christ, is not offended by Christ, it's John the Baptist. John is the boldest proclaimer of Christ that we have prior to the resurrection in scripture. So there's two ways you can take that. You can take that as a warning to John. You know, you'll be blessed if you don't get offended by me. I don't think that's the best reading of it. I think the the best reading of this is a straightforward blessing of John. Jesus knows that John is someone who is absolutely committed to following the Messiah, whoever he is. And so he tell, he, that is a blessing of him. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think more evidence for that is the fact that as we keep reading, he goes on to praise John. Um, so if we look at verses, just a moment. Yeah, verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, speaking of John the Baptist, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
So this is fascinating, right? John the Baptist is doubting Jesus. He's experiencing a doubt, which many Christians would look at as a bad thing. It's a sinful thing for many people. That's a very common attitude I'd hear. How does Jesus respond to John's doubt? Well, he gives him evidence. He blesses him and he praises him very highly. Wow, that's quite a response. And if you, if you know your Bible, if you've read a lot of the New Testament, you might realize Jesus doesn't always respond this way to doubt. In fact, sometimes he responds very, very differently. So, uh, for example, if we look at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, and I'll read it for you. Matthew 12, 38 through 42, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are asking for a sign. They're asking, give us more evidence of who you are. Give us, give us a miracle or something to confirm that you are who you say you are. How does Christ respond? He answered them. This is verse 39. He answered them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Pharisees ask for evidence, they ask for a sign, and and Jesus' response is, an evil generation asks for a sign. And so he, he doesn't just reject it, he says, you're evil for demanding this. That's quite a response. And we might also think of uh, the story of doubting Thomas, right? We haven't, I'm not going to go there and read it, but I'll summarize it. Um, One of Jesus' disciples doubting Thomas is not believing that Jesus had raised from the dead. He'd heard the testimony of the disciples, but he wasn't believing in Jesus. He says, until I see the prints of the nails in his hand, until I stick my finger in his side, I will not believe. And when Jesus appears, he actually has some words of rebuke for Thomas, he says, you've seen because you've believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So what's going on? Why is Jesus so incredibly positive towards John and his doubt when he's often so harsh towards other people? Well, I think the, the, the passage from today, Luke 7, gives us the answer. We're going to keep reading. The answer is the condition of the heart of the person who's asking what is the intention of the, of the question. Why is that person doubting? Are they doubting because they're trying to find a way out, trying to find a way where I don't have to commit my life to Christ, I don't have to follow you? Or are they sincerely doubting because they have real questions? They're struggling. There's a very different uh, sort of doubt going on there. Um, there's actually a, a famous book written by Jonathan Haidt. He's a psychologist called The Righteous Mind. One of the things that the psychologist He's done a lot of study on disagreements on fundamental issues. And he said some of the research showed some fascinating things. One of the things that the psychological research showed was that whether or not you find a belief attractive has a huge impact on how willing you are to believe it. And he phrased it like this. People who want to believe something ask the question, can I believe this? Is there good reason to? They don't throw reason out the window, but the question is, can I believe this as a rational person? That's sort of the attitude they'll take towards it if they find the belief attractive. If you find a belief unattractive, you don't want to believe it, maybe because it's inconvenient for you, maybe because it would require you to change your life. The question people ask is, must I believe this? In other words, do I have to or can I find a way out of believing this? 
those two different attitudes have it will have a drastic impact on how you respond to any belief in your life. And so when Christ comes into your life and he proclaims his lordship over your life, Christ is Lord, folks. That means our choice is to submit to him and experience the joy of a relationship that we were built for in eternity, or we can reject him and experience hardship. But you know what? The bonus of rejecting him is I don't have a Lord, right? I can do whatever I want in this life. That's the bonus of rejecting him. It's a pretty short-term perspective, by the way. Death comes fairly quickly for everybody. So hopefully we're thinking beyond just this immediate moment. So if we're coming to Christ's claims with the attitude of, do I have to believe this? I really don't want to. Guess what? Christ is not going to force that change. Um, just a moment here. I started, I got, I uh, got off my notes and started preaching beyond what I had written down. So let me go back to where I was. So, oh yeah, I was going to read the, I should actually read the passage. That'd be where I need to go. Verse 30. So let's look at the Pharisees and how they're responding to Christ. And that will help us see why Christ's response to the Pharisees is so different. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees' problem isn't that Christ hasn't given them enough reason to follow him. The Pharisees' problem is that they have rejected the purpose of God for their lives. So Jesus says, uh, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, to, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't weep. So he's saying you're like children who are never happy. We give you something happy to do and you don't want to be happy. We give you something sad to sing. You don't want to be sad. You're just never happy. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the problem with the Pharisees isn't the messenger, because it doesn't matter what messenger they get. They're going to reject him because they've already rejected the purpose of God for their lives. So the condition of the heart is what shifts Christ's response here. The reason that Christ is responding with such grace towards John is because John isn't rejecting God's purpose for his life. He's just struggling with a question. So uh, one thing that might come up here is, well, what about, what about doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas presumably wants to follow Christ. He's one of the, the disciples. Why is, Christ, why is Christ criticizing him? Well, I think with Thomas... It isn't that Christ is criticizing Thomas because Thomas needed evidence, because Christ has already given Thomas many evidence. Think about, think about doubting Thomas. He had been through Christ's whole ministry, had seen Christ do many, many, many miracles, heard Christ predict, I'm going to die, and then three days later rise again, then had the, the women at the tomb say, we saw Jesus, he's alive, then had the disciples say, no, we saw Jesus, he's alive, and he was stubbornly refusing to follow the evidence. Christ's rebuke here is for the fact that Thomas is not following the reasons he's been given to follow Jesus. He's stubbornly always demanding and asking for more. So, just to repeat the main point here, it is normal and healthy for the Christian to experience doubts. Even the greatest person other than Christ in Scripture experienced real periods of doubts in their lives. 
The question is, what is at the source of your doubt? Are you doubting because you want to find a way out? Maybe Christ's claims on your life have become inconvenient and you're looking for ways to disbelieve. Well, guess what? If you're looking for ways to disbelieve, you'll find them. It's amazing. On campus, I talk to young people and, and there are some people who are so committed to disbelieving that they will deny that the world exists to avoid following an argument that leads to God. I'll say, well, you agree that the world exists, right? That's a starting point. Maybe how do we explain that? Well, how do we know the world exists? Maybe it's all an illusion. It's like, oh, okay. All right. You know, um, but that's, that's, that's a real point though. You can find a reason to doubt anything, but here's a little rule of th- rule of thumb that, that might help you guys. The fact that it's possible to doubt something doesn't mean there's a good reason to doubt something, Right? Those are two very different things. So the fact that you can think up a possible way you could doubt doesn't mean you have any good reason to doubt, right? So I think looking at this passage and how Christ responds to John the Baptist can really give us some solid applications for how we can deal with doubt in our own lives. So I'm going to, as I move into a close here, I had to look at my watch. Okay, I'm doing okay on time. Um, just a few thoughts from this passage and how we personally can deal with doubts. I think we should try and follow the example of John the Baptist here and how we deal with doubts and then follow the example of Christ in how we respond to other people. First off, with John the Baptist, we should never allow our doubts and our questions to separate us from Christ. Bring those honest doubts to Christ. It's okay to say to God, God, where are you? I'm calling out to you. Where are you? The Psalms do that. Obviously, I'm not saying be blasphemous and disrespectful and go over the, over the top, but it's okay to be blunt with God about how you're feeling and continue to pursue Christ even when you're struggling with doubts. That's the first thing. When you're dealing with doubts, continue to pursue Christ. Continue, continue to, to, to pray, to search for him in scripture, to be part of a community of believers. Don't allow that doubt to create a wall of separation between you and your Lord. The second thing is seek answers. Look for answers. I've been doing this a long time. And to all the big questions, the big ones that are the tough questions, I have found incredibly satisfying answers to those. I'm not saying I have answers to every little thing. But when it comes to the major issues that Christians get challenged with, there are incredibly satisfying answers to all those things. Seek answers to the questions you have. Even, by the way, this is important even if you're not struggling with doubts. You probably shouldn't wait until you're in the doubt to have some good reasons for what you believe, right? You should try and get some good reasons before you go through it. Um, So seek answers to the challenging questions you go through. But third, evaluate the attitude of your heart. And I want to be very, very careful here. Um, I am not saying that if you're going through doubt, okay, it's it's because you obviously just don't want to believe. That's not my point. But my point here is that ask yourself, is this doubt driven by an honest question or am I really trying to find a way out of believing? And nobody can answer that but you. The greatest danger for apostasy in the Christian life, apostasy means just a wholesale rejection of of Christ, by the way. The greatest danger for for a Christian falling into apostasy is not intellectual questions. It's not. 
I'm not saying those aren't real. Those are very much real, and I care a lot about them because I've spent my whole life, you know? That's my career is answering those intellectual objections. But those aren't the greatest danger. The greatest danger is unrepentant, ongoing sin in your life, by far. Because what that what does is that ruptures your relationship with Christ. You, you're not in fellowship with him. You're not going to be spending time in scripture because that's going to bring conviction. You're not going to really uh, be as committed in your relationship with the church because it's going to bring conviction. Ongoing unrepentant sin is the single biggest obstacle. When I am going through a period and I'm struggling with some sin and I'm not, I'm not keeping short accounts, I'm not going straight to God and repenting of it, you know what happens? I start to experience, well, maybe this all isn't real anyway. Not because I heard any new information, but because suddenly I don't feel the presence of God with me as directly as I normally do when I'm seeking him with all my heart. There's a sense where when you are not pursuing God, it is easier to have doubts whether or not there's any intellectual things and any intellectual questions. Um, I do want to make one, this is just a side comment that I've noticed, by the way, um, in my own life. It is also important to distinguish a real struggle you have between just a tendency to second guess yourself. I, I, I tend to second guess myself a lot. And so there are times where I wake up, oh my goodness, what if it's all a mistake? <laughs> what if this is all just, um, it's all wrong? But then you just stop, wait, hold on a second. Has anything changed? No, the evidence is still there. Okay. The evidence that Jesus is still Lord. He's still present in my life. Okay, so this is just a, this isn't a real doubt that I need to take seriously. It's just second guessing yourself. I think those sorts of things can be dismissed fairly quickly. If you have good reasons for what you believe, by the way, it's important to have good reasons for your belief. Because, folks, this is why the evidence is so important. Because your emotions are going to go up and down in life. You're going to have times where the things in the gospel seem so obviously true, you couldn't doubt them. I, I have many times in my life like that where it's so obvious that the New Testament and the Gospels are telling us the truth of Christ that I, I have no worry about doubting them. But then those emotions will go down, and sometimes the whole thing looks pretty improbable. The whole thing, like, and I'm not talking about any sort of intellectual argument. It's just you just read it. It's like, oh, maybe this is all, maybe this is all just nonsense. Those emotional ups and downs are a normal part of life. But you know what's always constant? The evidence. The evidence is always there. So take some time to dive into the reasons for what we believe. It's so, so important. Even if you don't think that you're ever going to struggle with doubts, guess what? Someone next to you might. It's important to have good reasons for what you believe. Um, so that's how we should respond to doubts in our own lives. Bring them to Christ, seek answers, evaluate the attitude of your heart in, the, in pursuing those doubts. How about helping others who are doubting? I think that the response of Jesus to John the Baptist should be our standard response to people who are struggling with doubts. Jude 22 tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. The reason Christ can be so bold in, in criticizing the Pharisees is because he can read their hearts, right? He can read their inner hearts. He knows that they're not sincere. We can't do that. We can't read other people's hearts. And so we should always assume sincerity. If someone's struggling with doubts, we should be gracious and gentle with them and take their doubts seriously, right? Christ didn't dismiss John's question. He didn't say, hey, you know better than this, John. Just believe me. No, he didn't do that. He was 
Jesus himself, right? He was God himself. And he still says, no, I'm going to provide evidence for John. So we should be gracious and gentle with people who have doubts. We should take their doubts seriously, help them find answers to the tough questions. Always assume sincerity. Now, I'm not saying there might not be moments where it's obvious the person's insincere. Um, sometimes people will be up right up front and tell us that, you know, this is just this is just too hard to live. I just don't want to live this. I don't want to. Maybe there's this moral principle that God teaches. I just completely reject that. I'm not open to any anything else. Maybe sometimes people will be on, be open with us that they're not open to the evidence. That's fine. But generally speaking, I always assume sincerity. I assume this person is just struggling and try to have a good conversation and help break down some of the barriers. But always, always love them as Christ would. Never allow the fact that someone's experiencing doubts to keep you from being with them. Maybe you're scared of an awkward conversation. Maybe you know you don't have the right answers to their questions. And so you don't want to hang, you're not going to hang out with them as much just because you you don't know how to answer their, their questions. That's the worst possible response. Never allow someone struggles with doubts to separate your relationship with them. Because you know what, folks? They might just be going through a hard time, and it might be all they need is for you as a believer to love them and still be there with them through that doubt. So never allow that separation to happen just because they're struggling. Always continue to love them as Christ would. So in conclusion... I just want to repeat for the third time something I've said. It is healthy and it's normal to experience these doubts in your lives. Christian, if you are sitting here and you're wondering, I don't know if I believe any of this. I don't know, is this Jesus thing all nonsense? Do not obsess over self-criticizing yourself. Oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a bad Christian. I'm just, my faith isn't strong enough or, or, or nonsense like that. No, that's not the attitude we should have. It is normal and it's healthy to experience those doubts. But how you respond to those questions makes all the difference. When we experience doubts, we should follow John's example, tell Jesus, tell the believers about them, look at the objective evidence, and evaluate our hearts. But, once again, to accurately evaluate our hearts, it's vital that we have a strong walk with Christ, that we're actually pursuing Christ. Folks, this is something that I didn't write in my notes, but I think it's worth bringing up as well. I think the evidence for Christ is overwhelming. I, I really do. When I, when I look at the historical data, I don't see another plausible way of looking at the history than that Jesus rose from the dead and he's our Lord. But what... We're not asking ourselves here, well... Uh, you know, should I invest in this stock trade? No. We're asking ourselves, is eternal life real? Is there really eternal life? Is there a purpose for which we've been made? That's the hope that Christ offers. So, so should our attitude be, oh, well, you've got, you've got, to, you've got to prove it to me. You've got, you've got to get me to 99% certainty or I'm not going to believe. No, no, that, that's not the attitude we should have. We are like people in a shipwreck out in the middle of a sea. Death is certain. And we think there might be an island over there. It looks like an island. I'm not. Now, would you know, would you wait until someone had proved to you with a hundred percent certainty to pursue that? No. Folks, death is coming for all of us. I know it's not a comfortable thought, 
but everyone dies from the youngest child in here to the oldest man. You know, when I talk to people who are elderly, what they tell me is that your life goes by like that. We should be thinking about eternity. And Christ offers us a hope so great that if there's good reason to think it's real, why would we not pursue that? So in close tonight, I hope this is encouraging to people who are struggling here with doubts. If you have questions with doubts, if you, if you have questions about your faith, if you have things that make you wonder what's true, please come talk to me afterwards or talk to your pastoral staff here. I know that they will absolutely get you some, some answers as well. But uh, don't just sit on it. Continue to pursue Christ in your life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity I had to talk about this really important passage. Lord, I know that it's normal for all of us to go through times of questioning. I thank you that you love us constantly in the midst of our struggles. And I pray that there will be people here that are encouraged to continue to pursue you and love you with all their hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Here today, he was here with us this morning because he's a partnership. He, we have a partnership with him in reaching people, reaching the lost to have their their thoughts challenged, have their hearts encouraged, and have their souls led to the forgiving love of Jesus Christ. And he does that primarily on college campuses, but he also does it in the training and the education of Christians in churches, so that you and I can do the same thing he's doing. He's in places that we don't always have the access to, but he's doing it in such a way that trains us to be able to do that in the places that we do have access to. So I I hope and pray that you take advantage of his uh, resources and our partnership with him. Um, We have that partnership with him because you give faithfully to our church. We're not um, bringing him in to raise more funds or support or anything like that. This is a display of what your giving already accomplishes by allowing us to put him on our missions roster and having uh, the, the souls in our backyard reached for the cause of Christ. So we thank you for that, and I know he does as well. We really appreciate the fact that we're together on this. So what do we do next with what we've heard this morning? Well, I, I really am excited to be encouraged by the message that he gave us, and I, and I hope and pray that that's where you're at as well. Um, I like the reality of the fact that we are going to doubt and that Jesus understands that and brings us through that. So let's continue to pray for folks like him. This is a season of encouragement. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll be introduced to another one of our partners. And then a few weeks after that, another one. And so my prayer is that our church is challenged, but also encouraged to continue the fight and to continue supporting the gospel message as it goes into the darkest places uh, in our culture. And so let's continue to pray for Travis and his family, for their health, for their safety, for their provision, and all of those things. And let's continue our friendship with him as we go forward. Would you please stand and let's pray and be dismissed in song. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, so much for uh, the truth that you've given us, Lord, through the eyes of John the Baptist, through the eyes of Thomas, whom we have labeled as the doubter, Lord, and so many times uh, relating to those doubts. So help us, Lord, to come to you, even with our questions, but from a purer heart, from a place of quiet trust in you, even with those doubts. Strengthen us, Lord, in that, knowing that the real life is a life that walks in the dust of this earth and doesn't see you face to face. And that's why, Jesus, you said to us that it would be Better for us to believe even if we hadn't seen you. 
So that's the era that we live in. But we know, Lord, your presence is with us. Continue to go faithfully before us, shine our path with the light of your word. Help us, Lord, to know the truth of who you are in its pages. Thank you for these encouraging and faithful people. Thank you, Lord, for bringing them into this place to be refueled and recharged, to be recentered as they go out and face the culture and the world and the difficulties in which they struggle. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would permeate their souls and would lift them up to a place of quiet and obedient trust in you, but faithfully proclaiming your glory to the world around them. So thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.